morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. Welcome back to the Full Stack Journey podcast, where we talk about the ongoing evolution of the IT professional. Thank you so much for listening today. My goal, as always, is to help equip and prepare listeners for their journey of learning across the full stack of technologies that are present, today's data centers and public cloud environments. I am your host, Scott Lowe. Um, you can hit me on Twitter as at Scott underscore Lowe, or you can communicate with the podcast uh, Twitter account directly using at FSG podcast. Now, joining me today is a very good friend of mine, uh, Nicholas Lane. Nicholas, how are you, sir? Hey, Scott, I'm doing really well. How are you? I am doing well. Man, it has been uh, a long time since we caught up. I'm so glad to have you on the podcast. Uh, listeners, just to give you a little context, uh, Nicholas and I worked together at Heptio um, prior to the acquisition, and Nicholas has since moved on, but I don't want to steal his thunder, so I will give him a moment just to kind of introduce himself and you know, tell us what he's doing these days, and you're welcome to you know, share any sort of social media contact information in case folks want to follow you or whatever, so take it away. All right. Sounds good. Well, thanks for having me, Scott. Uh, yep, as Scott mentioned, we are friends from the Heptio days from prior to the acquisition by a former company. Um, so yeah, I am a staff engineer on the Kubernetes platform team at Wayfair. You may know Wayfair as uh, that company that you can buy furniture from online. So we're a, a massive online, uh, well, I don't know, massive, but we're a large online retailer and a uh, it's been a really interesting journey to go from a company like Heptio to a, a major like vendor like uh, Wayfair. So, yep. Uh, if you want to contact me, if you want to find out where what I'm talking about, uh, my Twitter handle is at API Nick. That is a handle that I created to uh, test the Twitter API, and then it somehow became my permanent like Twitter handle. Um, Besides that, I don't really have much other presence. Um, I used to have a blog, but I, I realized that it's gone defunct. I think I'm going to try and get that going again. Uh, so I'll let, you, I'll let you know on Twitter when that's going again. Uh, also, I guess if you want to shoot me an email, I'm nicklaneovi at gmail.com. Um, and yeah, that's about it really for my online presence. Awesome. Thank you, Nicholas. Appreciate it. Um, I do want to know if you do manage to restart the blog because uh, you got so much cool knowledge in your in your head there. And at some point later on, I might hit you up for a podcast um, talking about the move from vendor to user, right? Like going oh, from yeah. a company like Heptio or you know any other sort of. I mean, because we have lots of listeners that work for you know companies VMware or you know Dell EMC or you know Pure Storage or whatever, right? And then moving from that sort of life into being a, a customer or a consumer of the technology, I think probably is a is an interesting discussion. Um, but that's for a different day. Yeah, I, yeah, I'd love to be on. I've got a lot of opinions on the on the subject for sure. <laughs> awesome, I love it. Love it when guests have lots of opinions. But our, our oh, topic yeah. today is not that. Instead, we're talking about application migrations and really talking about this in the context of Kubernetes, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I felt like this was. A, an interesting topic because it feels like so many times when customers start going down the Kubernetes journey, and we've talked about Kubernetes a number of times on the show in a variety of different contexts, but it feels like when, when customers start rolling down the Kubernetes journey, that they may have some preconceived notions in their head that, you know, application might, oh, I don't need to migrate applications when they're running Kubernetes, you know, everything's stateless, you know, just kill it and recreate it or, you know, oh, I can just store it all in, in a Git repository, aka GitOps, right? And like, I, I feel like there's some nuance and some detail there that might be getting lost. And so, um, mm -hmm. 
from your perspective, because I understand without going into any of the details that uh, your team at Wayfair has been doing some application migrations recently. And, um, you know, from your perspective as a platform engineer, as a, you know, essentially a cluster operator, right? What are some of the considerations that, you know, might come into when you're migrating applications, you know, between or among clusters? What are some of these, you know, details or some of the color or nuance that might be getting lost when people, you know, first get started on that journey? Sure. Um, and you, you brought up a very good point, which is that to many people, containers and like things running in Kubernetes are ephemeral in a way, so they can go away. But what I found is that 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 can be true for sure. Um, if your, you know, your application teams and everything are running just purely stateless applications, sure, that's possible. But um, what we found was that there's actually quite a bit of consideration that needs to go into uh, applications like how they live on the cluster, how they use your clusters, uh, or how other applications communicate with them. So uh, that was a lot of things we had to take into consideration when doing our uh, application migration. So for instance, um, we had we just finally uh, finished the migration of an application that was very dependent upon uh, by other applications, like applications that run large parts of our infrastructure rely on this application. And it needed a lot of handholding to be able to move from one cluster to another without interrupting service from applications that reside on it. Because there's a lot more uh, to communication pathways for your application than you might like consider from like first blush. Uh, for instance, you know, if an if an application is referring to another one via the ingress, you know, its ingress object seems kind of a weird mechanism um, for it, like two applications running in the same cluster, right? You know, why would you reach outside the cluster to come back in? However, it's an, something that it gives you a little bit of like nice flexibility when you're migrating to your applications, particular clusters, particularly if your clusters happen to share the same FQDN like ours did. And I can get into that more in a, in a bit. Um, but so for applications that referred to each other by their ingress object, it didn't matter what cluster they were on because it was always routing to the proper one. But if they were referring to an in-cluster config, you know, in-cluster, you know, the uh, service name dot namespace dot service dot cluster dot local, right? If they're referring to that and they're dependent or the application on which they depend has migrated and they haven't, there's no one there at that address anymore. So now they need to uh, they need to either migrate or we need to roll back, whatever makes more sense for the uh, sensitivity of the application that's being migrated or that's being affected by like this, uh, this dependent application missing, for instance. Yeah, that's a great point. I think a lot of people, you know, Kubernetes does a great job of making certain things easy but I think mm -hmm. sometimes the fact that they make certain things easy, like service discovery, right? And that sort of built-in DNS resolution of, you know, service name, namespace, you know, uh, cluster local, right? Uh, you know, like, oh yeah, I can just reference that. But there are considerations what happens when you have to move that application to a different cluster than where it is right now, mm -hmm. right? And so things like using DNS as a layer of abstraction, you know, can be helpful, right? So that's that's a great yeah. example. Shifting the, the, the conversation just a little bit then, but I, I want to talk about, before we get into the details, and I think there's going to be some very cool details that come out of this discussion mm -hmm. that I think will be really, really useful to listeners. Um, I want to talk first about like why, you know, what was the why behind the migrating applications, right? Like, sure. You know, again, for folks, especially folks that are new to Kubernetes, they may not be thinking down the road a little bit about, oh, I need to do a cluster refresh or I need to 
uh, you know, do something of that nature. You know, I want to take advantage of new instance types that have been used on AWS. If you're running on AWS or if you're running on premises, you know, oh, hey, I got some new hardware in and I want to take advantage of these faster CPUs and more memory or whatever. Um, and then, you know, they're like, oh, well now what do I do? And so anyway, but um, why, why do we need to think about migrating applications? Yeah, that's a, a, a very interesting question. And it's one that I think before working at Wayfair is one that I, I probably would have had the opinion that I, I'm sure a lot of people have, which is like, why don't you just upgrade your cluster in place? Like that's sort of, why don't you make these changes to uh, your cluster as it is? Um, so, but there's a, a lot of things that go into the life and the architecture of a cluster that you, you know, may not be considering, right? It may be like from, uh, you know, when we were, when you and I were working in the services uh, part of the world, right? When we were working at Heptio or before that, um, I was working at like Red Hat, for instance, you know, oftentimes we'd run into these situations where it just seemed like the easiest path would be just, you know, use your cloud provider to like to help you leverage these things. Um, it seemed like cluster migration might not make the most sense uh, all the time, right? It might just seem like, oh, why don't you just build on the cluster that you have? Uh, or alternatively, just treat your clusters like uh, cattle, as you know, they're referred to and just like, oh, who cares? Just, you know, kill that cluster. There should be another one running like, and yes, if you have like this very interesting automation that allows you to do that, then this really isn't a big consideration for you. But uh, for us, we actually, uh, the reason why we went down the path of migration is we have this, uh, so at, at Wayfair, we actually have a hybrid model. We have an on-prem uh, set of clusters and a cloud-based uh, set of clusters. And one of the things that we wanted uh, when we were doing the architecture of the Kubernetes clusters is that the both environments, no matter where it's where it's running, have to look the same. So what that means is like if we don't have you know automatic load balancer type objects in on-prem because we don't have like that network uh, automation for that, then we can't do the same thing in cloud. So we have to like we we actually are using the cloud. But we're not using any of the provider like mm. generated tools. It really is just like VMs sitting in the cloud that are you know very similar to VMs sitting in our data center, like our on-prem data center. So um, because of that, then there's also, we're not leveraging a lot of the like networking tooling that comes with being on a cloud provider, that sort of thing. And so uh, we have to architect the network layer ourselves. And so our previous uh, clusters were architected with certain constraints in mind, um, you, know, you know, networking addresses that were allocated to us, that sort of thing with the, what we're calling the C2 clusters or C1, C2 clusters, that like networking architecture and the infrastructure architecture for that cluster has just totally changed to the point where it made more sense just to stand up a whole new cluster rather than trying to like slam these two ideas together and just make something that was just fundamentally broken or could be fundamentally broken or actually just more work to make work together than just having people migrate, you know? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it's, it's an interesting sort of discussion that, again, I think a lot of people who have not been responsible for operating environment tend to overlook is there's all this talk about, oh, well, you know, Kubernetes is, you know, uh, gives you independence and you can just migrate your applications anywhere and da, da, da. But not if you are taking advantage of provider specific functionality, you know, to your point mm -hmm. about being in the public cloud versus being on premises, right? Like, you may not be able to do a service of type load balancer in your on-premises environment, depending on your configuration, whereas yep. you typically would be able to, again, depending on your configuration in a public cloud provider. 
And simple mm-hmm. little things like that make a difference, and it does affect the portability of applications back and forth. So again, you know, a little nugget for you listeners there, right? Like, yes, Kubernetes does give you some platform independence, but there's always these little details that you need to pay attention to. So yeah. Yeah. kind of summarizing you know, what you were saying there, reasons that operators might consider you know, just migrating applications would be one, you know, dramatic changes to architecture like the networking architecture you were talking about, right? Um, or, hey, you know, we feel it's it's cleaner to stand up a new cluster instead of trying to upgrade the existing cluster in place. Yeah. You know, you know, the reality is like not everyone upgrades their clusters like all the time, right? Because mm-hmm. it's work and things break, you know, even, you know, if you try really hard to make sure they don't, but sometimes they do. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and so you might find it, you know, sort of better for maintaining the, you know, service level agreements and the service level objectives for your organization. Just say we're going to stand up a new cluster and then we can migrate applications, you know, basically, yeah. I don't want to say as needed, but, you know, over time, like we don't have to take this big bang hit or something like that. Right. Does that sound accurate? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think that's a very good point that I, I don't. I don't know if I touched on too much, but yes, the uh, upgrade model for Kubernetes, right, is not something that a lot of people do as often as perhaps is recommended by the Kubernetes project team. And so, yeah, like if you're even three versions behind of latest, I think it just sometimes makes more sense just to stand up a whole new cluster rather than go through the process of doing iterative upgrades like that. Because for those of you who don't know, uh, the there's actually something really interesting. And I'm going to tangent a little bit. But um, the Kubernetes cluster itself, the API server, if I recall, this is from a talk that I listened to Jordan Liggett give um, at KubeCon the last time that we could actually do that in person. Um, So San Diego. Uh, And he was talking about the API server inside the Kubernetes cluster, and it has its own version, its API versions for like what it expects like uh, the resources to be. And those change each version just slightly. And so something that can happen is if you're like using a, like maybe a kubectl that's or you're, get, you're using an object that's like a few versions behind, then what the uh, cluster expects to be using, data can be lost if you're not in close lockstep with what the uh, server is actually using. So um, sometimes if you're you know using older versions of things and moving to a new one, sometimes it just makes more sense just to ditch the old one and just go for a new one. I feel like I got a little rambly there. I hope that was a cogent thought. Oh yeah, no, I totally get it. I mean, it's just, you know, uh, there are considerations, like, you know, more than one around, you know, whether you do an in-place upgrade or whether it makes more sense for your organization just to stand up another cluster, you know, side by side and then go through the application migration process. And depending on your, you know, your overall uh, sort of application architecture or your, I don't don't know what term to use, but sort of, you know, the overall architecture, right? You know, are you taking advantage of things like DNS abstractions and that sort of thing that might make that process easier? Right mm-hmm. than perhaps otherwise. So yeah. um, now, uh, what, from from a high level perspective, let, let, you know we we've kind of covered the why you know customers would would migrate you know applications between or among clusters, but from a high level, what does that what does that process look like? You know, like sure. I, I'd really love you know for sort of again without divulging details that are you know specific to your business, like what mm-hmm. did it look like for you managing this process? Sure. Um, yeah. So the this was. Uh, Definitely an interesting project for me. It's it's one, I think, the first time I've ever done a project quite like this. Uh, so basically, the process looked like I, once the new versions of the clusters were all created and available, I basically send to a motion like a, a 
my my plan. Like prior to uh, the C2 clusters being created, I sat down with my manager and was like, here's my plan. Here's the timeline I'm proposing based on my understanding of the technology of the C2 clusters. I actually didn't help the creation of the C2 clusters. That was another uh, staff engineer on our team who kind of like ran that process. Um, but I worked with him to get like, okay, what, what do I need to know about the C2 clusters from like an application standpoint? Um, and so basically what came out of that was they were, he was very smart uh, and made it so that the C1 clusters and C2 clusters shared an FUDN from our ingress uh, perspective. And I'm not really gonna dive into how our ingress works, but basically it's if you're deployed in C1 or C2, the uh, traffic will be split between them until you are either migrated or you need to roll back for whatever reason. But uh, that made migration for us very easy because a lot of applications, you know, they didn't have to make these big changes to their uh, deployment mechanism or to our deployment mechanism. They just needed to say like, hey, I want to deploy here now versus here. And the majority of our users, that was like about all they needed to do. Um, I'll get into a bit more of the steps uh, for migration in just a second. But basically once the C2 clusters were available, I then announced to the world that, hey, the migration process is happening. We have this like email uh, like chain or handle that we can like send to that Hopefully people pay attention to, we'll be honest, a lot of people filter these things out and then forget to go back and look at their bucket. Uh, that's understandable. So we had to like, you know, big announcement like, hey, these are, this is what's happening and here's why. And here's the timeline that you care about. Um, you know, it's basically once that announcement happened, we were like, you can migrate now if you want to via our deployment mechanism. We use a CD process. Um, and so they're like, here's how you do that manually. But if you wait until this date, there will be automation that's available for you, which uh, we, you know, which the Kubernetes platform team wrote to assist you to do all these things. So basically, we're trying to like show them, hey, we're you have to do this pretty soon, but we're trying to make it as easy for you as possible. And I think that's a very important thing is understanding that even if it is a minor ask to make people migrate, if you've tried to make it as easy for them as possible it's still an ask. It's still something, you know, there's a lot that goes into applications running in a new cluster, making sure things work. So being cognizant and being aware of your users' um, time, their, their stress for, you know, whatever they need to do, their priorities, being aware then trying to be as upfront as possible with like, here's the timelines, here's the, everything that you need to do is, I think, incredibly valuable and probably the most important thing that someone should do when evaluating making a jump like this. So after we made that announcement, um, basically I wrote some tooling to help me find like reports to see like, hey, who's migrated? How many people have migrated already? That sort of thing. And then I got to writing the automation. So actually I wrote the all of the automation for the uh, migration code basically. So I wrote everything in Golang and we'll I think we'll talk about that in a little bit, but I'm giving like kind of the high the higher view of the entire process. So I went out and wrote this application and then created, we use, uh, I'll, I'll give you a clue into one of the things we use, we use Jenkins for a lot of our, um, just like one-off jobs that we need to run. So then I also wrote like a, a Jenkins pipeline to like, basically I wrote a Golang binary that runs very specific steps in a Jenkins like declarative pipeline. That was interesting for me because I actually had to learn how to write Jenkins. I'd never done it before. Then, you know, once that automation was ready, we announced the world, hey, like this is ready. Here's, and I wrote all these documents to be like the user guide for the like migration process and the automation and all these, like all these things. So I gave them all this documentation, fired up a new Slack channel and uh, just kind of 
made it my life to make it easy for people to migrate uh, during that time. Um, because the migration process was fairly smooth, we gave users about a month to migrate on their own, um, which some people might have thought might be a little bit more aggressive than uh, well, actually, to be honest, we gave them more than a month after that. We gave them a month once the migration process was finished. We actually gave them the month prior if they wanted to do it on their own without any uh, automation. And then, um, yeah. So what we found after that month was coming to be uh, coming to be closed, there wasn't a lot of traction in the migration process. And I realized that I think that there was an issue with our communication pathway. Uh, so I then went about and figured out where, which teams hadn't migrated yet, who owns those applications. And then I went into their channels and was very aggressive with my messaging at that point and very hands-on to be like, Hey, you got to migrate. And they're like, you only told about this, about us, uh, this to us now. And I'm like, there were a bunch of emails, <laughs> uh, that sort of thing. So, um, got in front of them and then, uh, helped them to migrate and then, now we're at the process. So uh, once the deadline was up for applications to migrate themselves, part of our announcement was that we would be migrating any applications that hadn't done it yet with limited validation. Basically like, hey, are your pods running the same way that they're running in C1? There you go. Okay, there. that's check, migrated, that sort of thing. Um, now that that is completed, we are getting closer. We're getting into our screen test stage. And so what, uh, what the screen test is, is uh, basically we're going to shut down communication to the clusters one by one and let it sit for, you know, an hour or two and see if anybody screams, essentially. If there's any like major problems that occur with that happening. If there are, then we'll help those, uh, those few applications migrate as well. And then finally, once that has subsided every time, you know, we'll do this a couple times over the course of like a few days, I think. Um, just, you know, cut off communication. Once there's no problems, then we know we're clear and we're ready to remove the old uh, clusters. Yeah, I think, you know, that's one of the takeaways I, I have, and, and you echoed this a little bit, is that whole process is like, yeah, there's some, there's some technology involved, but a lot of it is just being aware of your users, your consumers, those people who mm -hmm. are are hosting their applications on your platform mm -hmm. and being aware that, you know, they have their own deadlines, they have their own projects, they have upgrades or, you know, rollouts or whatever that they're doing. And, and they have, you know, goals and objectives that the business is holding them accountable for. And, you know, and you are, you're asking them to take on an extra thing. And hopefully, you know, you're, you're offering them some benefits in return, you know, more resources or better performance or mm -hmm. better scalability or whatever those might be. Um, but, but there is an ask there, right? As you said. Yeah. Um, and so uh, it really sounds like, you know, a key part of this is if you're a platform operator, uh, or a platform engineer, you're sort of, you know, someone who's in the same shoes that, that Nicholas is, is in right here and you're having to work with groups. It's, it's all about, you know, user communication and mm -hmm. finding the communities where they are, right. Which are their, you know, their individual Slack channels or, or, you know, doing lunch and learn or brown, you know, brown bag kind of thing. I think that term is probably supposed to be avoided now. So apologies yep. folks. Um, but you know, you're, 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 you're engaging in some form of advocacy and engaging with the users to say, this is, this is the task that we're asking of you. Here's the tooling that we've offered you to help 
streamline. Here's the timeline and this is how much time you have so that you can fit this into your sprints or whatever else you need to do. And then, you know, okay, here's, here's, here's the thing. Now we're going to come in, we're going to actually do it. Right. Um, yep. And so I, I think that's interesting. And again, as technologists, we often think only about the technology, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Oh, this is the platform and this is how we're going to do it. And this is the tooling and this is the pipeline and da, da, da. And we, we often forget about the human aspect of mm -hmm. it. Right. Yep. Um, yeah, absolutely. Like when you have all the keys of the kingdom, it seems, you know, it is very tempting just to be able to say like, uh, you know, I you know, own this cluster and you are migrating now and all these things. But, you know, it's for me, a uh, user experience is very, um, you know, very important. I think it's very fundamental as a owner of a platform to be cognizant of the people who are using your platform. You want them to have, you know, they don't necessarily have, have a good time, right? But they need to have as little uh, friction using your platform as possible. And, you know, these like events like these, these massive things where we're doing a big ask of them is a bit of friction. So, you know, you have to you know, be cognizant, be communicative, um, and just be, you know, empathetic to your, your customers, essentially. I know they're, you know, customers is a weird phrase. Uh, we're used to it from a services uh, endpoint, but the, you know, the people who are um, relying on you, they're in a sense, your customers, no matter where you are. No, I, I absolutely agree with the use of the term customers. And I've, I've used that phrasing before where I, I refer to those of us who are working in IT, whether you're working for a vendor providing services of some sort to another company, or whether you're working within, uh, you know, an organization that is a consumer of the technology, and you are operating this platform or these technologies on behalf of others. Like we exist in in IT, we exist not for the sake of the technology, but we exist for to help that technology enable the business to be successful in some way. You know to mm -hmm. sell more things or make more widgets or whatever it is that our company does. Um, and so I, I personally absolutely agree with the use of customers in that context. And I think it's okay, okay. entirely appropriate. Yeah. Um, now you mentioned tooling and that mm -hmm. you wrote some of your own tooling. Um, but I'm curious, like, and maybe it's just a matter of the, the thing that you are trying to achieve out of the tooling right? Mm -hmm. And finding the right tool to do that. But I'm just curious is, you know, there's, there's lots of other things that people use to maintain application state or even like that. I mean, Heptio, um, you know, initiated a project called Arc, which I then after the VMware acquisition was renamed to Valero. And, you know, part of their whole thing is we can back up applications on one cluster and restore them onto another, which would be a form of application migration, right? Yep. Um, you have uh, things like, uh, you know, GitOps, which has been championed by Weaveworks and others as, you know, this is how you should do things. You store all of your declarative state in, you know, Git repository, and then you have an operator that applies those changes and that sort of thing. Now, mm -hmm. I see the flaw with that one flaw. I'm using air quotes, which you can't see because it's an audio podcast, but um, because that doesn't address sort of application stateful data that the application generates or consumes. It's just handling application configuration. But um, what was the primary goal for the tooling that you created that led you to like create your own tooling, right? As yeah. opposed to using something else. Um, yeah, absolutely. And so uh, let me start this off with a kind of a caveat. Uh, I'm a huge, huge, huge proponent of writing your own automation. It's not to say that I'm against finding tooling that exists in the ecosystem and using it. If you find tooling that exists in the ecosystem and it fits your use case, that's great. That saves you so much time. Uh, to 
you know, write this thing and have it like tested and, and, you know, hopefully there's a community that's helping to like, you know, improve the, that project. That's great. And that was something that I did look into, um, when I was going down the path of like figuring out what automation we needed the, um, but that I just want to say like, yeah, I'm huge, huge, huge into building your own automation and I'll, I'll get into why a little bit more when looking around for other tooling that like we might use rather than building our own. I did first consider Valero. I looked at Valero first for sure. Um, and Valero basically did a lot of what we wanted it to do. You know, that, that, you know, they kind of like, Hey, deploy here. Okay. That's no longer needed. Now we can kind of clean up this other, uh, version. A lot of that functionality was present in Valero. However, one of the tools that we use to maintain state at uh, Wayfair is Helm. And Valero doesn't really work with Helm. It works with the object API itself, object API, like so like the deployment API, the, the pod API, those specs itself, and then copies those directly over rather than working with a tool like, like Helm. And so because of that, I, Valero wasn't really a good option for us because if we just copied over the result of a helm run which is like the deployment object and everything the fact that it's actually deployed to this other cluster would be lost you know so that state is totally lost just because the object has moved over um i didn't really find any other tooling outside of that that really helped in that way um we do have like GitOps. Uh, as you mentioned, in a sense, uh, so we do have a deployment mechanism. The the deploy or you know CD deployment is what I meant uh, mechanism. Um, we do keep the object data close to the application. It's in the same repo, um, but we don't have that piece of automation. The the operators you're saying that was like looping through users like repos and then making these changes for them. Um, we don't have that quite yet. We do have a tool that one of my um, colleagues at Wafer created called Gator, which is some, I, I feel fine saying it since it's an internal only use tool. It's not something that you can find. But basically um, what it does is it can look through our uh, Git repos and then based on a string, so it does a regex match against whatever file that you care about. So in this case, it's like the deployment file. Um, if it matches a string, then it can do an X number of actions. And one of those is uh, file an issue on behalf of that repo or file a pull request on behalf. So if we're like, hey, we found you're in C1, you need to be in C2, here's a pull request to make that happen. That was uh, something that we, I was interested in, in doing. The Gator is a fairly new project within uh, Wayfair. And so it just took quite a bit of time to be able to get it to where we needed it for like this migration project. But it is definitely something that I've, I considered heavily using as well. Um, so again, yeah, like, hey, find tooling that works for you. It may not, it may also just exist inside of your own company's ecosystem for sure. Beyond that, so that was like a, a mechanism of communication that uh, we had explored, but um, it wasn't really what we landed on for the full migration automation um, and basically what that is, is a Golang binary. So I write everything in Go. I'm a big proponent of Golang as a uh, programming language. I really, I just really like writing in it. It's really, I'm, once I went from Python, which was like not strictly typed, I know it can be, 
Um, but when like Python not being strictly typed to a strictly typed language that was like easy to read, like Go, I was like, oh, this is great. This this variable will is only a string and it'll only ever be a string and it won't ever be anything else. Oh my God, great. So I kind of fell in love with Go. So everything I do is written in Go. So we wrote this application that basically follows these steps. Um, one, it gets the repo that the users care, that the users like deployed from, um, which we actually have a CRD, a custom resource definition. Whenever something gets deployed, this CRD is created. It's like an, it's called the application CRD. And it may, it has, it maintains the state of like, who was the last person to like do a pull request? What repo did this come from? What group owns this? That sort of thing. So that was invaluable for us to determine like ownership, uh, communication path, all these things. Um, so basically my, my code just like goes in, checks out their application CRD or gets it, um, gets the Git repo out of it, and then uh, goes and does a pull uh, clone their repo to wherever I'm like running this like set of automation, clone their repo, and then validate that that user can run the automation against their code owner's file. Uh, so we have like code owners for each repo. So we're basically like, hey, does this user's name say that they actually own their a member of this repo? If not, sorry, dog, you can't <laughs> you can't do something potentially destructive, right? <laughs> you know. Right. So then after that, it you know verifies that information and then it does the migration. And basically, the way the migration works is I go into um, I determine what clusters it's running in, use that to then say like here's my cube context for all the commands that I'm going to be running and then gets the current state from Helm, which is like the values um, that Helm is aware of, what release version it is, what chart version chart it is, where the chart is stored, gets all that information, stores it locally, and then does the install via Helm. So now Helm is aware that there's a new state um, and then goes through and just basically loops through each of these applications and installs it. Then we have a 10 minute wait where the user has to say yes or abort in our Jenkins job. And like, hey, is, there, is this running properly? If yes, great. If no, then we'll roll you back. Um, so at that point, it's like a blue-green sort of thing. So they're running in C1. They're also running in C2, hopefully. Uh, usually that was the case. And, you know, they had time to like sit on it for a little bit, make sure there weren't any alerts, anything comes up in their like, in their metrics. And then if they say yes, then it goes and it removes their old version from C1 and then locks their ability to deploy to C1 again by through uh, some mechanism that we have, which I don't necessarily need to get into. But basically we make so they can't deploy to C1 again and they've just gone through this whole smooth process into C2. And if they abort, then the opposite happens for C2, but I don't lock them out of deploying to C2 because that would be madness. You know, one one key takeaway here for, for users is, um, you know, the fact that you guys were using this application CRD that encapsulated a lot of, uh, how, how do I want to describe it? It's like business knowledge, let's say, yes. right? Um, because, you know, the applications don't exist in a vacuum. The applications mm -hmm. exist to support the business. So saying, here's this application and it came from this Git, Git repo and here's, you know, the last person to put a, you know, a PR in or here's the owner of the project or whatever, you know, all this sort of like associated data is really, really useful because that's how you guys were able to go in and say, oh, okay, well, here's who we need to contact for mm -hmm. application blue, and here's who we need to contact for application green and, you know, whatever, right? Um, yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, I guess the, 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 the thing I want to pass on to the listeners is, is like, you know, explore the option of, of using the fact that 
Kubernetes has this functionality to capture data that might be useful in workflow or automation or anything like that, rather than, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, like CRDs, they feel like they're some sort of black magic, but they really like aren't, you mm -hmm. know, um, yeah. the operator might be the black magic, but that's a different discussion for a different day. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think that's, actually, I, I kind of want to dive into that a little bit more. Yeah. So something like the application CRD, having this metadata that is just stored somewhere was incredibly invaluable, not just from an automation standpoint, but also, as you mentioned, a communication standpoint. And actually something that I wish that we had more in our, in our CRDs, um, is like you know Slack channel or communication mechanism, right? So something like contact us via this, like this is how you talk to the team. Because one of the struggles that I found was, remember how I mentioned that I went into people's Slack channels and uh, was communicating with them directly? That was done with a lot of manual work on my part. So I took like the application CRDs that I found hadn't migrated, basically they weren't in both clusters and there weren't pods spinning in both clusters and said like, hey, okay, here's all the names of teams that I'm aware of, as long as they put that information in there, because one of the challenges that we found is that it's hard to validate this information a lot, you know? So we just kind of trust our users to provide us with useful information. Um, and a lot of times it did, but it took a lot of extra steps to make sure that like, hey, this is the right channel to talk to these people. So I would like find the team channel and then find the last person who did a Git push, because that's also stored in the metadata and then make sure that they're in that channel that I'm considering. And if they're not, then I'm like, okay, crap, I got to find another like channel that has like a similar name to the name team that I'm looking for or slightly different name, you know, that sort of thing. Um, so having the metadata is insanely valuable. It's also make sure that the metadata that you have is also use, useful. Um, so for ours, it, it was ultimately, but there was a lot of extra steps and I kind of wish there was some other there's one more step. I want to get to the next evolution of the CRD that has like really enriched metadata. Yeah, no, it's good to know. I mean, it's, it's a good point to make um, is that, you know, like you got you to gotta sort of fine tune it. You got to iterate on mm -hmm. it, right? You capture some yep. metadata and you might realize, hey, yeah, there's more metadata that I need to capture or there's different kinds of metadata that I need to capture. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but that's, I mean, that's really cool that, that you know, you were leveraging the Kubernetes API to to simplify or in some ways enable a, a non-technology sort of thing, right? I mean, it's just, yeah. I find that really cool in terms of how, how that works. And it's it just, it's, it's neat. So thank you for sharing that. Um, oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So as we're preparing to wind down, I just wondering like, you know, really quickly sort of, you went through this process, you, you wrote this mm -hmm. tooling, you know, you were deploying this tooling in a Jenkins pipeline and you had all this interaction with your users um, with your customers around, you know, migrating and helping them migrate and providing your documentation, all that kind of stuff. It, and sort of, you know, now that you look back on it um, being largely done and stuff, you know, what would you do better next time? What were some lessons mm -hmm. that you learned out of this that might benefit listeners? That's a really interesting question. Um, so one of the things I think I would do different next time, uh, knowing what I know now is like, really evaluating our previous communication pathway. You know, there were quite a few users who were a bit frustrated when I appeared in their Slack channel and was like, hey, you've got to migrate in like two weeks. Snap, snap, like it's coming down the deadline. When they're like, why are we only finding out about this now? And I'm like, well, I don't know. I've been emailing you or I've been using this email and this other mechanism that maybe you weren't aware of uh, all this time. So it's one of those things where I find that it really does pay to get in front of people to really put in that like extra effort early and just really get in front of people, not um, just kind of 
rely on mechanisms that may or may not work really like really like if you ever go into a process like this or something i i highly recommend in the future uh particularly for myself is really analyze what tooling that you have available to you even from like a not just a technology standpoint as you were mentioning but from a human standpoint the ways that you communicate with people and really evaluate if they're truly effective or not and what you might need to do uh to really get in front of people and communicate with them in a way that's effective for sure uh the other thing is i think i would set my timelines a bit i was uh, fairly aggressive with my timelines and i think you might remember me from uh remember this from heftio but i was also the kind of person who basically threw everything i had at something to make sure <laughs> that it fit in this timeline so i was like you know i worked some quite a few 10 hour days and i didn't necessarily need to do that to myself and it wasn't really anyone else who was saying like you have to make it by this day i was just like i said it was going to be done on this day so i'm going to make sure i did it you know mental and physical health be damned sort of thing yeah. uh, so i would definitely scope things a little bit better i think for next time or timeline right. things i should say yeah no no that's those are good lessons to learn and mm -hmm. uh, you know we we've touched on the 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 communication and the human aspect of this several times and i think that's really important because you know, again, as technologists, we so often tend to downplay that part of it. And, yeah. and it's really about, um, you know, making sure that you are communicating with the, with the users, those people who are consuming your platform and relying on your platform to meet their, their goals and their objectives. Um, so the idea of, you know, fine tuning uh, communication channels and that sort of thing. Um, I had a thought in my head when you were talking about that too. And, and then that's sort of the flip side. And that is, don't abuse some of these communication channels. Like, you know, mm -hmm. why, why did the email stuff not work? Probably because they were getting a bunch of junk. Right. right. And so they just tuned it out like, uh, you know, a metric or an alert or, you know, an alarm that, you know, like, Oh yeah, that's just that one. Just ignore that. Right. It's that, yeah. well, that's that email thread, you know, or that email alias from it. Yeah. Just ignore that. Right. And the reason is because they're, they're, they don't see the value to that in their, context you know like mm -hmm. the endless announcements or whatever it's like yeah yeah whatever delete um so for, from my perspective it's kind of like the flip side of that is like you know hey recognize that you know like these people have jobs to get done and like throwing mm -hmm. you know walls of information at them that aren't necessarily applicable may not may, may just exacerbate the problem yes i think that's a very good point and i know we're we're, we're winding down a bit and i'll get on this uh, but yeah absolutely I totally agree with you where it's like when I was going into people's channels, one, I was quite nervous about it because, you know, now I'm just suddenly like really interrupting people and getting in front of many, many people. Um, but I have to, you know, try and make sure that people like met the deadline. Um, but it was, yeah, I only got in and talked to them like maybe twice at most, like made the same like post twice, particularly for teams that were like a little bit like more like later in their migration process. Um, because of, for that exact reason, like if I was in there every day, I would someone would probably be like, hey, let's uh, let's have a conversation with this this user who's annoying the hell out of everyone, right? It wouldn't have looked good. It would have been aggravating for everybody, um, you know? So uh, yeah, I think that's a very good point. Yeah, do not abuse your communication structure, use it um, and be, you know, cognizant of people's times and their, you know, well-being in any capacity. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess if we had to pick one word out of all of this, and you mentioned it early on, but I'll, I'll mention it again. I think if, if one word I had to pick out here really kind of captures how to approach this, it would be empathy. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. yeah. I'm, I like that a lot. Well, I mean, you know, it's like we, we all have, 
We all have deadlines. We all have mm-hmm. projects. We all have things that we have to get done. And, you know, we need to recognize that and interact mm-hmm. with people in, in, a, in an appropriate way. You know, yep, um, absolutely. you're going to a line of business, a team that's maintaining a line of business application, and they, they have things they're trying to get done as well. And they're relying on the platform that you maintain. And now you're telling them, well, do you have to move to a different thing? Like, have some empathy, have some, you know, recognize that this might cause some heartburn. It might mean some extra work for people. People might have to work a 10 hour a day or a 12 hour a day or, you know, whatever, like mm-hmm. just recognize that. And, you know, it's not saying that, you know, you got to do what you got to do. I mean, it is what it is. Right. But at least yeah. recognize that our decisions and our choices have impacts on others and, and, you know, try to be at least cognizant of that fact. So anyway, yeah, absolutely. But, but we a very good point. a little bit, yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So let's wrap things up. Um, Nicholas, thank you so much. I, I really, really enjoyed the discussion. I think there's a ton of useful information here for listeners. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Just to remind folks again, real quick, where they can find you online, which is pretty much oh, just your Twitter handle. But yeah, yeah, pretty much just my Twitter handle. Yeah, uh, yeah. But thank you so much for having me. This is a lot of fun. I'm actually amazed that the it's over. You know, it went by so fast. <laughs> so, right. Uh, kudos to you for being a great host. You made it so easy to be on. I really, well, thank really. You. Uh, had a lot of fun. Um, so if you want to follow me, I am at API Nick on Twitter. Um, if you really, really want to get in contact with me and want to like ask me something, you can reach out to me at NickLaneOVI at gmail.com. Also, uh, if you are interested in the tech that we're doing at Wayfair, um, there is a Wayfair blog. I don't have it handy, but you can find it. There is a Wayfair blog. And also, if you're interested, if any of the things that I've talked about are interesting challenges that you want to work on, hey, Wayfair is hiring. The Kubernetes platform team is hiring. So come and uh, work with me. We'd love to have you. I can highly recommend working with Nick, uh, Nicholas. He's a great guy. Um, so <laughs> oh, thank you. Uh, there you go. Yep, um, absolutely. I know there are folks out there looking for work. So if you are out there and you are looking for a position, um, definitely uh, something to consider. So, well, thank you again, Nicholas. Appreciate it so much. Uh, listeners, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the Full Stack Journey Podcast. Once again, you can communicate with the podcast on Twitter as at FSG Podcast. You can hit me, Scott Lowe, your host directly at Scott underscore Lowe on Twitter. This episode is, of course, published via a variety of platforms from iTunes to Google Play to Stitcher and numerous others. If you do find the show useful and helpful, we'd appreciate you taking a moment to give us a review and give us some feedback. Um, as always, you can find uh, past episodes of the podcast available on packetpushers.net. And that's it for me. Everyone have a great uh, afternoon, evening, or morning, whatever the case may be. 